Elements, human-centered media storage. Elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. My name is Charles Hain. I'm the host of the No Film School podcast. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. What What's an old school newspaper name for like a foreign correspondent? Because you're in Idaho, <laughs> which is like uh, writer from afar, Michelle De La Tour. I'm really excited to be back. Thanks for having me. This week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about an interesting jobs report on Planet Money. That's not something you normally expect us to talk about on the podcast, but it is film related. We're going to be talking about Sony and Canon going very close to each other on release dates on their new concepts in cinema. We're going to be talking about tech news, a new product called Color Lab, which I actually think is revolutionary to the post workflow. It blew my mind. I'm very excited to talk about it. All that and a deep cuts. And I'm actually going to drop in a new flavor on deep cuts this week on deep cuts. We're, we're picking a subject and we're going to say one movie we love and one movie we hate on a specific subject. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So our top story this week, if you guys don't listen to Planet Money, you should. I feel like between Team Deacons and Planet Money, we're plugging a lot of other podcasts lately. You guys going to plug back Planet Money? You going to you going to throw it back <laughs> next week? You're going to treat this like YouTube? Planet Money has a great daily podcast called The Indicator where they talk about one financial indicator every single week. Uh, I mean, every single day of the week, uh, The Indicator from Planet Money. This week was they did a dive into the jobs report. Um, which we've all been looking at where, you know, we lost 30 million jobs to COVID. We've gotten about 10 million jobs back. So we're still 20 million down. Um, and they, they looked specifically at a bunch of different sectors and they said, you know, a lot of sectors are coming back. But one thing that they really dove into was that entertainment is still at 50% employment. So first off, I really want to commend the Planet Money team because the first thing they followed it up with was, and a lot of people are saying, well, everybody should just retrain. But like, haven't we all been watching movies and TV through this whole pandemic? Don't we want more movies and TV when we're done? Like, don't we want this sector back because we enjoy their product? Like, we don't want them to go leave the industry and retrain. We want them still making stuff when they're done. And I was so relieved to hear that because I was dreading the like, these people should all go to coding school or whatever. And it's like, you know, it's uh, it's nice to be to have acknowledged that like we've all watched a lot of content to get through this pandemic together and we want more of it to be made after on the other side of this. So thank you planet money for that. Really appreciate it. Um, and you know, but one thing that I think they missed and I, I only think they missed it because it's, you know, it's a jobs report. So they're looking at these big sweeping numbers is I actually feel like that 50% entertainment. Uh, and that was like movies and TV, but also like live shows like Broadway and stuff. I think it, it's a little hit or miss because I think that's lumping all of entertainment together. And if you actually break it down, some sectors are better and some are worse. I'm just going to go anecdotal here. All of my friends who have like big corporate jobs who work in like studios or marketing or training or anything like that, very, very few of them lost their jobs. Most of them are still employed that I know of. Like even the big studios like Disney didn't lay off a ton of people. There were a lot of salary cuts. But then I think we get to that 50% number because gig work was a bloodbath. And I think gig work is probably, and gig work is like 
the making of major feature films is gig work for most people, right? Like the, the wardrober, the hair and makeup team on a hundred million dollar movie is, is a gig job. You're not put on contract for that salary for seven years. Like the fifties, you get hired for a movie. I mean, let's be real. If you're a gig worker, you're always trying to plan ahead. So even if you had a movie that was wrapping in February, you probably had something penciled in for summer and penciled in for fall if you were big enough. And all of that is gone. And as this town slowly starts to restart, huge battles are starting to erupt over that. So like, I think that 50% number, first off, so great for Planet Money to talk about entertainment, like real people with jobs. That was awesome. But also, like, I think that 50% number... <laughs> it, is, it is sort of surprising because you always feel like the corporate... Or any sort of, don't you always feel like we operate or freelancers in the filmmaking entertainment world operate in this fringe where it's like, well, that's not real, right? It's like imaginary yeah. work. We're modern day pirates. We're like people who couldn't <laughs> have real jobs. So we ended up in entertainment, right? Making where there's and like finding treasure. Yeah, and hoping we'll find treasure. Yes. Well, it's also like the last bastion where you can get a lot of work with no high school degree and no background check. Like, mm. there are tons of people making good living on film sets in many departments who didn't finish high school. And For so long, like, I didn't have anything like a resume because oh, yeah. I just worked based on people saying, "Hey, you want to work on this thing?" or texting or emailing, like, "Yeah, we got it. We're doing yeah. this project. You want to be on it?" It was like no interviews, no nothing. Like, yeah. Um, uh, well, but I'm similarly, I growing up being a person who wanted to work in filmmaking, everybody always kind of gave you this sidelong glance, like, "But what are you really gonna do?" Like, how are you really going to like make a life? Like, that's not a real thing. You know, we've all dealt yeah. with that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I continue to, I work at a film school where every people's parents are constantly like, and what will they do? And it's like, well, there's like careers and jobs and corporations that employ people and NBC sends people to cover the Olympic. Like there's all of this work um, that people are getting trained to do. So, yeah. So, that was interesting. It is really depressing to hear that even with everybody, that numbers are still so bad that we're at 50% employment compared to before, even with all the corporations that didn't cut anybody. Like that tells me that it's still really, really bad in gig work, which makes sense. I mean, anecdotally, I only know two people who are shooting this fall. That 50% number seems so low to me. When you first said it, because I don't know anyone who's, I don't know anyone who's working right now. I like in the in the traditional sense of gig work in filmmaking. I know very few or they've gone to other states to do it, which is a whole other question mark. But that actually seems really low. Or yeah, I feel like it would have been much higher across the industry. 50% is am I the only person that feels like 50% is low? Um I have I have such a hard time. I'm I try to be careful about um, and I'm not saying you guys have made a mistake in doing this because I'm about to do it too. But I try to be careful in applying my my uh, anecdotal evidence to the broader, like going Wait, by my. George, are anecdotal you saying that the plural of anecdote is not data? <laughs> well, these days it feels like it is, right? Qualitative. I mean, I, more and more these days, I feel like we are having a hard time. Like, we're like, well, do I know anybody who has coronavirus? But we don't need to go down that road. It's very complicated. Like, whatever happened to facts? I don't know. They're all gone. 
but I do feel like uh, when it comes to the people I know, so I come into contact with more people in the industry than I used to simply because of no film school. So I've talked to a number of people like for this podcast, I'll give you an example. A while ago, we interviewed the gentleman who do the Just Shoot It podcast. Great podcast. Check it out if you haven't. Um, and Oren uh, Kaplan, who's on that, uh, was telling me that he has shot a couple things as a director. He's a commercial director. And he was telling me about the couple gigs he's had during this time. And at that time, I was really shocked because I hadn't heard of or known a lot of people who'd done anything. But then an uh, old friend came out of the woodwork and sent me a potential story for No Film School about how uh, he pitched something and, and it actually went ahead and it was like kind of Zoom based. And, you know, he's a director. And then, uh, and I know like on the business end, Charles, like what you're talking about. Um, I know a couple of people in business affairs, like legal side, that like that's a super corporate studio end who saw big pay cuts during all of this, but negotiate deals basically at like the ABCs of the world. And I have a friend who is an exec at WB, Warner Brothers, who got laid off. Um, and that was devastating, you know? So I feel like my anecdotal evidence is like kind of all over the map. And all I know from it is that um, shit's crazy. Like people are like, it's, it's, it's just the kind of work that's happening is super weird. And a lot of people who felt su very secure are suddenly have nothing. Um, and it's scary. And, and I think so when I, to answer a long winded way of answering the question, Michelle, about does it feel low to me? I have no idea. Like I, I, I can't like, all I know is that it just feels like completely upside down. And my one plea, and I love that we're doing this story, Charles, and I'm glad you brought it up. I really hope everybody out there is giving themselves like a lot of room and ex and not being hard on themselves about the struggle. I know that doesn't help pay the bills, but like this is insanely difficult. Like this is an insanely difficult period and stretch for people in entertainment in anything. And don't be mad at yourself or frustrated with yourself or the world. Like everybody's struggling. Like it's tough right now. It's always tough in this industry, right? This is insane. True. So before we move on, I just want to thank, this actually came from a listener. A listener emailed me, a listener named Zach, uh, who makes a product called the Stable Lens, which is in Adorama, and he asked me to plug it. And I was like, you know what? You sent a great story idea for us to talk about this week, and I'm glad we talked about I will happily plug your Stable Lens. It is an attachment to your lens to help when you are stabilizing. Um, so thank you, Zach, for sending it in. And you guys can always send in stuff for us to consider talking about you don't even have to have a thing for us to plug you can just send in a yeah. story thanks for the tip i bef before we completely move on does anyone like do you guys have any like thoughts or advice i mean you've both worked in education and charles i feel like you like you said you talk to the parents of people who are going into this field like and you're still working in a school i'm curious like what can we say to people that are in that 50 percent and terrified you know like what are we I you know, hate hold on, to hang in there like the kitten on the calendar. <laughs> I think that the the key to surviving entertainment has always been multiple revenue streams. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first moved to LA, I was I was on a shoot with this actor, and he was telling me about his stereo installation business, and he was like a working actor. I like knew him and stuff. And then I met another actor a couple years later who's been in four movies nominated for Best Picture. And he had a gig where his family owned a storage company. And he was like, yeah, when I'm not auditioning or in these movies, I'm like at the storage company. And so I always think multiple revenue streams is the smartest possible thing you can do. So my advice for people has been that this is 
a very hard time to break into new territory in the industry. Um, and my unfortunate advice to a lot of the graduates who graduated this year was like, this is going to be a hard time to crack in and you should pursue whatever you can do to get income flowing now. Um, and then worry about cracking into the industry. Cause like people who are in the industry are barely work. Like of everybody I know, I know two people who are shooting stuff this fall and that's, uh, you know, my average fall three quarters of my friends are doing something, you know, and it's like, it's just so slow right now that I do think this is a great time. You know, my sister's training to be a contract tracer. She doesn't work in entertainment. She does a bunch of other things, but like, I respect that. I think that looking around for whatever opportunities to gain new skills you can, I think is very useful. If you have any medical background, I would say that obviously the job to train for right now is do whatever online training you can for being an onset COVID officer because there is work for them. Mm. Um, and the competition for that is pretty, pretty good right now. So uh, yeah, it's a tough time. I think and we've talked about this on this podcast and this is recent news. I think we've written a little bit about it in California. There was a law AB five that really kind of destroyed people's income in terms of being a freelancer and I think some of the restrictions are changing. And so if you're a freelance writer or photographer or musician, you should have a little bit more flexibility in terms of, of what you can do. Now, are there live things happening right now for music and et cetera for you to be able to do those things? Not necessarily, but I will just say that um, I, must, I just want to share that those things I think are changing a little bit. And if you were hoping to jump in as a freelancer, there's a little bit more, not that there's a lot of freelance opportunities, but there's a little bit, um, you can breathe a little bit better. Um, I think the fact that EB5, which went into effect at the start of this year, which came, came about at the same time as this, made it particularly bad. Because even if you wanted to freelance, instead of being on staff, you really couldn't. And I think some of that's changing. So that's good news, I think, for folks who for which that law was affecting their work. Um, and then other than that, I mean, we're with you. This is not an easy time. I wish I had better. I want to I want to keep it positive on that note. Like it's not an easy time. Um, and I think you're right in terms of where to look, where looking where things are growing. I think I know a lot of folks who are looking at the virtual filming or gaming industry as places to get trained up on. A lot of folks who are training on the Unreal Engine and apps and technology because that's where filming and virtual sets are going to be coming first we're with you we want to hear your advice too all right so just because the industry has slowed down a little bit doesn't mean the big players haven't stopped releasing products for us to make things with yeah uh, how, how was that for a transition so that was pretty the, good. oh thanks um mm -hmm. two major uh camera manufacturers canon and sony have both laid out uh, release dates for new products, announcement dates for new products. Sony is announcing a new product September 15th. Canon is releasing a new EOS C camera on uh, September 24th. Now, we've already had some leaks from Sony for the FS6, which is going to be like a little, uh, little buddy to the FX9, <laughs> which came out uh, uh, almost a year ago now, and everyone is super duper excited about. Um, Canon, it'll be a new C line. And actually we don't know that Sony is actually releasing that. It also might be something called the a seven C, 
which is like a compact A7S 3 uh, which will be interesting because the A7, like Sony is already famously a very small camera body. So when it says compact, I don't know what that means. Like, is it a credit card you put a lens on? Is it like Sony <laughs> FP body size? Like, I, like it could be Sony FP body size, um, which would be interesting. So I just wanted to have a little little jam session, a little speculation fest about what we think is coming out of Sony, uh, Canon. You know, Canon, uh, the C line is very popular. The C100, 200, 300, 500. Is there a C400? I don't think there is. Uh, Nobody's going to correct me, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to no. sit here. I, I'm going to say there's no C400. Even if there is, I don't believe it exists. Never shot it. Um, and speculate about what some of the interesting new features we might be seeing coming from these cameras. I can tell you one thing I don't think we're going to see from either of these cameras, and that is non-Bayer sensors. I think Blackmagic is at least a year ahead of everybody else on a, on a non-Bayer sensor. So I think we're, you know, in terms of that, you know, when, when Blackmagic over the summer was like, hey guys, we did a 12K camera and it's got a whole new sensor pattern. I think they, they won the buzz war for that. And if these cameras are sort of in the cinema line, six to $10,000 budget range, competing with the Blackmagic, um, I don't think either of them are going to have that I do think they're both going to be full frame cinema cameras. I think Canon uh, has a full frame cinema camera, the C500 uh, FF. Um, I don't know anybody who shot anything on it. That's not true. I interviewed Nancy Schreiber two years ago because she shot something on it. And we talked about it two years ago for no film school. Um, but she, I'm not going to like, she had a lot of nice things to say about it, but if you look through her credits, she hasn't done like a pro job on it since. So, it didn't take over her life. It wasn't a like, I have this camera and now this camera is my default. It was a nice looking short. It was a beautifully shot short, but uh, I think this is each, I think each of these companies are going to have like a $9,000 or so full frame cinema thing. Sony will be E mount. Canon will be R mount. Um, I think that's sort of where they're going head to head. And I think it'll be called the FS6 for Sony because we already know that that camera's coming. Um, I don't know what... They can't call it the C400 because then it can't be cheaper than the C300 and the C300's a little more than that. Maybe it'll be the C300 FF to sort of hit the price point where I think they're going to try and land or where they should try and land. Um, and then I think sometime next summer we'll have an EVA2, which will be full frame is my guess. Them's my guesses. Although all of those go, uh, guesses go against the fact that Blackmagic's 12K Super 35 sensor is Super 35. It's it's the classic smaller sensor size. And what's the price point you're hoping they hit with the new one, Canon? I guess and Sony. What's the price? What's the price point? I'm I'm a, you know the under 10 grand. Uh, yes, exactly. World. So like <laughs> 9,500, 8,900, yes. that, that sort of thing. The thing where it's like someone I know might buy one. I mean, I'm not going to buy one. I got a kid, but like someone I know <laughs> will buy one or so, you know, or like it'll be a reasonable rental rate. It's not going to be like a $40,000 camera that I can never afford to rent. It will be like, oh, you're reasonably within the universe of cameras that I can get my hands on. Wouldn't it be fun if that's exactly what they dropped? <laughs> like something that you just we did not expect that exploded. It was just like an 8K, blah, 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 camera, 12K, $40,000. It would be fun. Well, I mean, actually, I take it back. It wasn't the C500 FF. It was the C700 FF, and uh, which is like a C500 with more power ports. 
And yeah, I mean, when honestly, when Canon came out with it, it was like a $28,000 camera. Yes. And yes. we were all like, Canon, do, 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 you, do you know that you're Canon? Like, right. like I, I respect companies trying to grow into different markets. And actually, I'm the world's biggest defender of, you know, because the original Red One was $17,000. And then they came out with the Epic that was $40,000. And everybody was all pissed off. And I was like, no, 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 guys, this is actually a good thing. Um, and I had like, I wrote art before I even wrote for no film school. I wrote a long elaborate article for my personal blog, defending the pricing of the Epic. Um, so I actually think it's good for companies to be willing to go up into the more competitive marketplace. But when Canon came out with the C700 for 28,000 and on paper, I didn't see why it like compared to everything compared to what it was competing against. I was like, I don't think this is a $28,000 camera guys. Um, it just felt like the wrong price point for what it offered to me. Um, I, you know, I, I was going to say, I mean, I'm not, this is a little outside of my expertise, um, obviously, but don't the cameras kind of benefit from like, you're talking about expanding. Don't they kind of benefit from having, I know the companies want to uh, people to use their tools in all kinds of ways and they don't want to seem like it's limited, but don't they also sort of benefit a little bit from the, the idea of the niche or the loyalty to like, I love using this kind of camera because it does so well in this kind of feature or this project, you know, like I, I wonder is, is there like, there always seems to me to be this desire on the part of the manufacturers to create tools that people say, oh, this is going to be the one, the best at everything. Right. But I wonder, or, or applicable to all types of project, but just from a creative standpoint and less from a technical standpoint, or maybe the place where the two intersect, I wonder uh, if it's good to have it be sort of like, well, for this, this is a Canon type of thing. You know, like this is the thing we'd use a Canon for, and this is not the thing we'd use. This is the thing we'd use a Sony for. What do you guys think about that? I mean, there's such fierce loyalty among filmmakers and owner operators and stuff. Um, do you think it's best for them to pursue like refining their niche, or is it best for them to try to be applicable to more niches? Charles? <laughs> so. I think. Is it a bad question? <laughs> no, it's a great question. It, it's a great question. So here's where I come down on that. This is when you get into that whole, like what the audience wants to buy versus what's the best thing. Like for instance, I love yeah. Blackmagic. I use Resolve all the time. I know a lot of people at the company. I'm super nice. I've never been a fan of the Blackmagic pocket cameras because ergonomically they're physically too wide for me. They're too wide. They don't fit well in an underwater housing or on a stabilizer. I don't understand why they make the camera so wide. I am alone. Everyone else loves the pocket 4k and the pocket 6k. Those cameras sell like gangbusters. Why raw internal raw. That's all everybody wanted. Now, most other camera manufacturers looked at it and was like, actually, you don't really need internal raw. If you expose properly, it's not that big a deal. It costs a lot of extra processing. Like, actually, the smartest decision would make a camera that looks great without raw, and I'll give you external raw if you really need it. And they all got wiped out of the water by Blackmagic, who was like, no, guys, internal raw, that's just what they want. Like, let's just give them what they want. And, you know, all the big companies were like, yeah, but they don't really need it. Like, logically, if you think... You know, it's like gut instinct versus smarts. Like all the big companies, and don't get me wrong, I think Blackmagic is a very, very smart company making very, very smart moves. But I think that like it, it was an emotional appeal where people just wanted a camera that shot internal raw, whether or not 
there are actually benefits to it, although there are going to be huge benefits to the internal raw on the 12K because it's a whole new sensor. And I'm so excited about that. So like, I think there's a little bit of like, you know, if you want a hot camera, you need a feature that gets people excited. And like the original 5D Mark II, it was the image quality, but like competing on image quality is really hard now because all the cameras look so great. Blackmagic was like internal raw. This is a thing we know you want. We are just going to give it to you because why wouldn't we give it to you? And we're going to make every camera at this price point and above that doesn't give you internal raw look dumb. And they sold like hotcakes. Those cameras are still everywhere, even though they're too wide for most gimbals, even though they're like, everyone was like, don't care internal raw. This is amazing. And it is, it's smart. And like, I think that camera manufacturers would be smart to find a, a, a thing that is their standout thing and lean into it. Um, for Canon, that's color and skin tone reproduction. I mean, Canon is local YouTube, um, for Sony, that's low light for Fuji. That's color reproduction. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. I don't think you can make one camera that's, that's the right camera for all scenarios. I mean, I think the Alexa mini LF is really close to being the right camera for all scenarios, except for the fact that it's like a $50,000 camera. That's $2,000 data rent. So it's not the right camera for this scenario where I don't have the money for it. But when you have the budget, the Area LF Mini is probably the right camera for ninety nine percent of your filmmaking journey. Um, but that's the yeah. That's what I always yeah. That's a good answer. But yes, that's what I'm always coming back to. Yeah, but I mean that's the thing is like to do everything that you wanted to do, it needs to be fifty thousand dollars. And you know, if you want to make a camera that sells volume, like there's way more Blackmagic pockets in the world than there there are LF Minis, and there always will be. Um, I think it's really smart that Black Magic was like, we're going to give you, we're just going to give you the features that we don't understand why everybody else isn't giving you. Like, why can't you just do internal raw? Why can't you just shoot straight to an SSD? Like, can we just do that? Let's just do that. Um, and it's kind of genius that they do that. And it's that kind of thinking that leads them to do a completely new sensor pattern. I think Canon will give you a full frame R mount cinema camera that will give you color Canon color. And I think that I honestly think the Canon will, the Canon will be huge in the YouTube reverse and whatever Sony comes out with will dominate corporate media for the next five years. The same way the FS seven was like the default camera of, uh, news media or like yeah. online media or all yeah. of that. I think the FX six, if this is the coming of the FX six, Holy cow, it will be, There'll be a lot of them. I'll be excited. There were, so, there were so many FS7s that when Fuji, who has cameras, came out with their MK zooms before they came out with them in X mount, which is their own proprietary <laughs> mount for their cameras, they came out with them in E mount for the FS7. Because they were like, well, there's like 100,000 FS7s. So we're going to come out with these fancy new lenses for the FS7 first. And then like two years later, they came out in X mount for their own cameras. Which one of these companies do you think is listening to their user base most? I mean, Blackmagic. I mean, if you're asking me Sony versus Canon. <sighs> I, I, have, I, I have a guess, but. Can I make my self-deprecating joke first? This goes uh, back. Yes. I, I want you to self-deprecate yourself. To, oh, no, no, no. This is appropriate. Uh, this is a. Uh, you know, where George earlier was like, anecdote is not uh, that important. Like, all I can say is, which of these companies do I think is listening to my personal opinions most? 
And I would say neither. Um, but in terms of their users, I think both Sony and Canon do a lot of interviews with their actual high-end volume purchasers. Like if you are Vox or Bloomberg and you're buying hundreds of these, I think there there is a relationship there to Sony. And Sony is really listening to those bulk purchasers. And I'm sure Canon is as well about the features they want, which are not necessarily the features of like a camera nerd on a podcast. So give your serious answer. That is not. I would have answered Sony potentially only because <laughs> Canon kind of feels like Apple to me in the way of, hey, we all used your product. That's how we all got started. If you were a documentary filmmaker, you used a 5D Mark II or Mark III or whatever it was. And we kind of broke it. We filmed video on a thing that wasn't really supposed to do video um, at the time. That's why it overheated all the time. And then it felt like they went away from it for a while in that way, in, away from that price point for a while. And it would be nice to see them come back. But I think Sony's been kind of consistently trying to figure out where their market is right now and changing it. So that's why FS6 would be great. Um, they just outfitted the, I think the Associated Press now all has Sony cameras. Um, so they know where people are using them and are trying to get them there. And I think that's pretty cool. That's my guess. I mean, I also think Sony is just being very aggressive and pushing things forward. Yeah. yeah. And you you have I never feel Sony is trying to play catch up. No. I sometimes true. feel Canon is trying to play catch up. Mm-hmm. Although everybody should be trying to play catch up to like I, I, I know I sound really excited about non bear pattern sensors right now, but I feel like it is the the biggest thing that's happened lately. And I really can't wait to see like now that Blackmagic came out with their pattern, which I think is a brilliant idea. I really can't wait to see Sony and Canon also come out with like, hey guys, what if we threw the bear pattern away? And I can't wait to see the corporate presentation that happens in two years in which one of those companies is like, then we have this brilliant idea. And they present it as if no one else has thrown out the bear pattern. And for the record, I'm a big Fuji shooter. I'm aware Fuji is not bear. They're X-Trans pattern sensors. And that's one of the reasons their color science is so nice. But I really love that Blackmagic was like, what if some of our sensors had no color at all? God bless you, black magic that's so cool have you got to use this is totally not related but like have you gotten to have you got to use the new 50 millimeter 1.0 fuji lens nope already emailed them i emailed them and i was like when when is there a review unit i would like to play well what's crazy is the autofocus is supposed to be great and i'm like oh that sounds so much fun like a 1.0 lens yeah like i trace autofocus i'm like oh i just want to shoot like a night a night a night scene on the river Welcome to the future of remote editing. Imagine being a thousand kilometers away from your post-production suite. With Elements Satellite, you can easily access your editing workstation remotely with extreme responsiveness, unmatched frame rate, and ultimate security. Due to the immense demand for high bandwidth and low latency, video production is often too challenging for traditional remote access tools. Elements Satellite is the first remote access solution purpose built for the media entertainment industry. Now, editing can be done with superb quality from anywhere in the world without any restrictions. Arrange your free trial at elements.tv satellite today. Moving on to tech news. I know the last thing seemed like tech news, but it was actually like 
<laughs> Our first two headlines were very businessy, and now we're going to move on to pure tech. So there's this color company called Color Lab, and it was started by this guy Dado Valentic, who's a like an online color like he is a professional working colorist, but he's also like there's a few colorists who are very prominent online. You run into them in articles and stuff all the time. They're prop popular on like the socials like Juan Salvo is a good colorist to follow on Twitter um, and Datto is like around I knew his name for years even before I ran across him and Datto got famous a couple years ago for doing this this sort of online talk um, it's like an hour that was fully worth watching where he was like you know there's that Twitter meme of like I made uh, I made a machine learning algorithm watch a thousand episodes of Seinfeld and here's the script it wrote and so he did this hour-long talk of like I I made a machine learning algorithm, learn how to color grade, and here's how I did it. And it's a really fascinating, like if you're at all interested in AI and machine learning and how it's coming for the film industry, it was really fascinating. But I watched, and I watched the whole thing, the whole hour, and I signed up for the beta, and then I didn't hear anything for a couple of years. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, a bunch of us got invited to sort of play with it before release. Um, my article should be up now on nofilmschool.com, and it is legitimately the thing it is the first example i have seen of machine learning coming to the film industry that is legitimately going to change the way we do our jobs now i don't think it's going to cost anybody any jobs this isn't machine learning that's going to replace the creative artist but it is insanely powerful and was shockingly good so i need to talk a little bit about three things I think if I'm going to give you guys the full context. So what color lab is currently built to do, which is his AI machine learning uh, color grading tool is it's not designed for something where you put your movie in and you hit one button and it comes back and it looks like a brother where art thou or something. It doesn't do that. What it does sepia toned, uh, burnt out highlights, that kind of thing. It, um, it does matching for scenes. So a common low budget color grading workflow goes something like this. You bring in the director for the first day and you sit and you go like one scene at a time and you pick one shot in each scene and you, you, you color grade that shot, you, your hero shot, you might call it to get it what, what you want it to look like. But then you don't often on a low budget job, sometimes the director can't afford to be there the whole time, or it's just faster if they're not always in the room. So you might spend a day setting looks, and then you might spend two days with no one in the room. You're just sitting alone matching. So you're going to that hero shot for the scene, and then you're making all the shots in the scene match that. And then the director might come back at the end and do a couple watch throughs and make sure that they liked your matching. With Color Lab, you literally, you set your look for the scene, and then you hit the match button and you have to set markers for scenes. You mark scene in, mark scene out. And then the AI matches the scene. It goes to all the shots in the scene and it matches them. And it does it by looking at the content of the scene. It's not just copying a grade. Cause like if the source shot was really dark that you graded and then you copy it to a really bright scene, that won't look right. Right. Or if it's like a wide establishing shot and then you copy it to a shot of a face, that might not look right. So it's not a copy and paste. It's literally a machine learning algorithm analyzing the content of the shot, being like, is this a wide shot? Is it a medium shot? Are there people in it? What are those people supposed to look at? And you can really see the results. Um, and you can even really see the results in mistakes. There was definitely one part where a shot was too blue and it fixed the shot, but it left this actor's shirt too blue. And I was like, oh, that machine learning algorithm could see that that skin tone shouldn't be that blue and it fixed it, but it decided that shirt was supposed to be a blue shirt, even though the shirt was kind of white. So you could like in its errors, you could see it work, 
but it would still, you'd sit there and you'd watch for five minutes and then it would have matched the scene. And, you know, I spent years as a colorist. I owned, I helped start two color grading facilities. I've color graded hundreds of hours of broadcast television and theatrical motion pictures. And I thought it really did a very, very good job. You would still need that matching session at the end where you go through and you review with the client, you polish and you fix things. And there were times where it didn't necessarily do the same thing, exactly what I would have done. But like for some, you know, like let's say you're doing a traditional indie feature and you did like one day, one day of setting looks with the director, two days of matching and two days of finalization. That two days of matching that you could do alone would now be half an hour on your computer, like telling the computer to match everything and it's built so it round trips to resolve so when you open it there's a little button fetch from resolve you can fetch your timeline over from resolve and then when you're done you send it back to resolve and it sets it up as the first two nodes in a resolve timeline so you can keep working so it's not something where you're locked in so it's really elegantly designed to work with your current workflow it really is smart and it does this amazing thing. So one of the first things that always happens when I'm teaching color grading is I'm like, okay, we're gonna bring in a reference still. And my students are always like, can I just copy the grade from that still, like a random still on the internet? And can I paste it to the shot? And I say, no, we're just bringing in a reference grade to, to learn how to match it. Color Lab lets you copy a look from a shot and paste it to your grade even a shot that you didn't grade. So you can find any shot on Instagram or the internet or shot deck. It even integrates directly with shot deck an online sort of image portfolio platform. It'll load up images straight in the browser and you can literally say, make it look like this shot from moonlight, make it look like this shot from a brother, make it look like this shot from Domino and it does it. And it's pretty good, which is crazy. Um, so it's a legitimate, like it's a huge leap forward because of machine learning. And, you know, we've all seen machine learning algorithm demos at NAB and in the last couple of years we were like, oh, maybe that will affect anything. This is the first thing where I'm like, oh, within six months of this coming out, a third of color grading, like freelance colorists, it's a thousand dollars a year, which seems like a lot of money until you realize that if you're like a working colorist and this lets you do an extra feature a month, it, it pays for itself in a month. So it's crazy. And when he was designing it originally to be a facility thing for big facilities to run on big hardware, when COVID hit and everybody moved to work from home, he scrapped it, rebuilt it as a Mac application, and it runs on a MacBook Pro. I did all of my testing on a 13-inch MacBook Pro, and it worked. Um, I'm careful to say this, but because it gets used way too much, but is this a game changer, Charles? Absolutely a game changer. I feel like we need an audio like game changer sirens or something like air horn. But I, oh, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, in tech, in the world of filmmaking, in the world of tech, and it just feels like people, like everybody wants to create something that's a game changer. But the way you describe it, it really does sound like it's going to revolutionize workflows is the, the other phrase. Um, second question. Will this replace like how much is this going to affect because we were talking about the economy and jobs like what do you see it like you say six months you see it like significantly altering people's work and the ability to do more how do you see it impacting colorists and so i mean paid? i used 
I mean, I'm split on like the future of jobs because on, you know, like just to use the trucking industry as the example, everyone's afraid of automated trucking ruining the trucking industry. But on the flip side, the trucking industry can't hire enough people. So like the same thing I feel like is sort of interesting here. What's going to happen is. Wait, why can't they? What do you mean they can't hire enough people? Well, like automated trucks aren't here right now. And like in pre-COVID, you would regularly hear interviews with trucking companies where they're like, we can't get enough drivers. There's not enough people interested in the work. Like, you know, we, you know, um, weirdly they never tried raising their rates, which I, I don't know, might've helped, but, um, you know, oh, I see. What, yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. yeah. You're just saying like, um, until the automated trucking comes, there's still plenty of room. So you're saying until what? the rep, until also, it happens, but you're saying it is happening, you know, but also like specifically in this area, what's going to happen. I mean, Color is an interesting space because, you know, in 1990, in 2001, if you wanted to do a digital finish on a movie, it cost you $100,000. By 2010, to do a digital finish on a movie costs like eight to $10,000. And now in 2020, you could probably do an indie feature for four or $5,000 or maybe six or seven. Uh, low budget. The most are probably in the ten dollars to $20,000 range. We've probably set their sort of like their rough budget is probably going to live in that space for a while. But now this is going to change. Like it used to be if you were the A colorist, you wanted to do the matching yourself or you had a really well-trained assistant to do the matching colorist, the matching thing. And that's the world that's going to change. The high-end colorist, the person who sits with the director at the beginning and sets the looks, um, that that job's not going away. The going through the, the grades in the end and finalizing them with the director, that's not going to go away. It's those two or three days in the middle where you have to sit around and do matching. If you're a, a one mule team, if you're like, I'm a colorist, I own my own facility, it's, it's, it's my guest house and I've built a projector in there and I do all the work myself, you're just going to love this because it's going to save you a bunch of tedious grunt work that nobody loved. Nobody loved the matching days. The matching days were, no, were not fun. You weren't feeling like you were like exploring and discovering. You were just, doing work a robot could do. So now a robot's doing it. What What's going to get cut out is at the bigger facilities, a lot of times that was like, you'd have the lead colorist working with the director and then you'd have a junior colorist doing matching. And that junior colorist is still going to be needed because you have to set up the project in Color Lab. You have to go through check its matches. You have to do all that. But that junior colorist's job is going to be a little bit less interesting and a little bit more babysitting a robot, a little bit less creative collaboration. And in a weird way, it's going to be that same, like, you know, the same thing I said about The Irishman, where I was really bummed that instead of casting a young actor who could get his break in The Irishman the way Robert De Niro got his break in Godfather 2 playing a young uh, Marlon Brando, like the latter was pulled up behind him. And he was like, all right, now I'm the guy and I will also get to play young me. And there won't be that position for like the young actor to play the young one to to rise to start him off of. And I feel like that's the same thing that'll happen a little bit with Color Lab, that there will still be assistant jobs. It will be harder for those assistants to make the, the leap to lead colorists. And if you're a lead colorist now, it's exciting because... You're going to be able to handle more work. You're going to spend less time on grunt work as a lead colorist, but it's going to be a little harder in the next decade to go from junior colorist to lead colorist than it was in the last decade. Interesting. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a helpful answer. I'm excited to see this in action. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I said in my article, I was like, I really hope there's some sort of academic license or some sort of like one-off license. I don't think this is the kind of tool 
I can guarantee you right now, because I know our readers, at least one of our readers is going to be like, I directed my indie feature and I'm going to figure out Color Lab to do it myself. I actually think it like the thousand dollar price point is enough to scare that user off, which is good because I do think you want to, I think you will get better results from Color Lab working with a colorist supervising it. Um, I But on the flip side, one thing that I did think about a lot is like, is every other company going to have this? And honestly, I have to say, I don't think they will. Because I do think you need a colorist building this. Like, I think Blackmagic might buy them, <laughs> to be honest. But, like, I can't yeah, imagine for sure. Apple or Premiere. Like, Apple or Premiere would have to go out to someone like Datto or Juan Salvo or Natasha Ickley or, or, or Stefan Sonnefeld and have them dedicate themselves to building it for three years. Because I think, like the colorist's vision for how this needed to be because it just integrates so seamlessly with the workflow we already have. And you're like, Oh, that's how you do it. Don't make us start over with a completely new workflow. Just find a thing that plugs into the way we already do it and just makes it better with a robot. Um, it's so smart. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. It's going to be, it's going to be big. I think. Nice. Awesome. Sweet. Moving on to deep cuts. So, the deep cuts theme this week is movies about movies uh, because we talked about the job report at the top of the uh, podcast and we thought, oh, well, you know, one of the things in this job report and one of the things we appreciated about Planet Money was that they talked about loving the industry and accepting the industry for what it is and hoping that the industry recovers and not feeling like we need to go do something else and go get go to coding school or something, but accepting that it's an industry that we want to thrive or hoping it continues to thrive. And so we wanted to do movies about movies. Yeah. Which is um, a deep, deep bench. I can go first. It's like it, is such a, it is such a deep bench because there's nothing people who make movies know better than making movies, right? So it's like it's like the right what you know thing times a bajillion, um, and there are so many good ones to choose from. You can't, you know, you can't go wrong. So yeah, go for it. I want to hear you guys first because I have too many. I'm gonna open with Day for Night, and the reason why I'm gonna open for Day for Night is the first. It's the first movie about movies I ever saw. I had a teacher who was like, "What's the best movie ever made about making movies?" And I was like, "I've never seen a movie about making movies." I was young. And also it was before everything was postmodern and meta and like, you know, half the episodes of community are about Abed making movies, but this was like the first one. And it's uh Francois Truffaut. It's also the first Truffaut movie I ever saw. I saw it before I saw the 400 blows. And, um, there's so much I love about day for night, but one of the things I'm going to, that I love so much about day for night is a special thing that I think is very true. Um, that it is captured that, I'm, I guess I'm very nostalgic for right now during COVID-19, which is it really captures the camaraderie and social aspect of making a movie together. It is one of the last big, great group enterprises where a whole bunch of people are together as a team. And there's a sequence sort of, you know, where they're wrapping the movie towards the end. And there's this sort of like end of the summer. I mean, it's also the end of summer right now, but like, you know, they're all talking about what they're going to do next. And the actors like, I think I'm going to go down on this trip and whatever. And there's just this like feeling of the winding down of a project that it captures that is so like poignant and like the end of summer and like the end of summer camp and like the end of any of the big complicated human endeavors we do as a group, as a team. Um, 
and I really like, there's a lot of great things in day for night. Um, uh, I believe in French it's called American night, La Nuit Americaine, which is what they call day for night in France. And, um, day for night, if you guys don't know, is an old school thing, uh, that used to be terrible. Digital techniques have made it a little better, but where they would shoot scenes at daytime and put a blue filter or turquoise filter on the lens to make it look like night. But like, Go watch Deliverance, which is a fine movie, but the day for night scenes in Deliverance do not stand up. And I honestly, like, did people in the 70s think that looked like nighttime? Like, have we I, changed <laughs> our aesthetic taste so much? You know but how we all... Technology, there's some nice day for night now. You know, I think we all have... Uh, everybody has, like, movie or, or whatever, cinema could be TV or movies, but like pet peeves of like something that just flat out does not work for you and breaks the leap of faith and, or the suspension of disbelief. And for me, it is bad day for night. Nothing takes me out faster. I think I was watching Gunga Din, which is a, you know, obviously a much older movie, 1939, I think maybe. And there are some day for night sequences where the shadows are just so hard. And it's like, come on, just try a little bit. Like it just could not take it. But yeah, that for me is a big one personally. But I just have to wonder, like, did everybody, was it just a convention that everyone accepted and it was just like, they all just liked it. I have no idea. I wonder sometimes if we're spoiled by the quality of the images we see and the prints and the, you know, the digital scans of prints. So maybe they, but I don't know, they were being projected at the time. It probably looked pretty good. They could probably see the shadows in Gunga Din. I really don't know. Maybe they just assumed it was actual day and they didn't even know it was supposed to be night. Although that seems like a leap as well. Michelle, do you want to, do you want to take a crack at it? I confess that I feel like I don't, I don't know what this means. I don't know if I watch a lot of films about making films. And I don't know, if, I don't think that means anything. It's just, I had to think about it for a moment. But I feel like the one, like one of the ones that sticks with me, because it feels like film inception, that there's a film within a film, but now it can be thought of and reflected on, on how to make a film, um, is Singing in the Rain. Because it's about 1920s, silent era but now when we watch it it feels like we're watching a movie about a movie that was made then and so it feels like layered in that way that's the first one that comes to mind the second one is not as positive or or doesn't have an iconic song because the other one that came to (laughs) mind was Mulholland Drive and that's like total 180 from that um and it's not a and I think it's layered and it has so many truths to it in terms of what isn't isn't real about literally and figuratively about the world and of Hollywood. Those are the first two that came to mind. Singing in the Rain is a great one, like one of the classics. And I don't even think pe- people are familiar with the song and the title. And I don't think people realize that it's about making movies. Um, it's kind go. of, it's, it's crazy. Uh, you know, this is like a, I, I just, I love so many movies about movies because I love movies and it's just this endless cycle of self-digestion. But um, I think in the light of just like the spirit of, uh, you know, one of my favorite movies ever is Boogie Nights. It's obviously about the porn industry, but that's not the one I'm going to select here. Um, I think that the one I'd go with is actually Ed Wood, which is Tim Burton's film about the actual director. Uh. And it's not a super deep cut, um, but like, you know, people are maybe pretty familiar with it. But 
what I love about it is that it's a move. It's a loving portrayal of a man known for being like absolutely horrible at making movies. And he had, this was, you know, a long time ago, kids before the room, if you haven't seen the room, you should, the Tommy Wiseau classic. (laughs) Uh, A long time ago, there was this other movie that was considered the worst movie ever, like largely widely considered plan nine from outer space was just like, what's the worst movie ever plan nine from outer space. Um, if you're a fan of things like MS, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, you've seen a lot of the worst movies ever, but Plan 9 from Outer Space held the title and it was made by Ed Wood. And Ed Wood was a fascinating figure and he was a dreamer and he wanted to make movies and he loved movies. And he was kind of like, I mean, he was kind of a little bit no film schooly, you know, I'm not trying to put us all down in like terms of quality and say, but like he was like uh, by hook or by crook, like I'm going to follow my dream and do this thing. And I'll find a way. And his story is funny, tragic comedy, uh, but also kind of inspirational. And he was a he was a fringe person and not in, accepted by society. And and he made a get a little group of people who joined him. And that's what the movie's about. And it's a it's a loving tribute to that idea of like, hey, I just want to do this. And maybe I'm not good at it. And maybe that doesn't matter. And uh, I can even feel like that's the way Johnny Depp's portrayal of Ed Wood would have said it. Uh, so I, I love that. I love the spirit of it. And um, but I'd also give a shout out just to like you know, there's so many good ones recently. Like the artist was a really good one that references Singing in the Rain along with so many of the other good ones. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a topic you could go on and on about forever. But if you're if you're in the place where you're like, I don't know why I'm doing this anymore or I'm one of the 50% unemployed in this business, check out Ed Wood and just, you know, laugh at him and ourselves and love this weird thing we do. Way to bring it back to the opening. That was nice. Well, I, I kind of, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, we can edit this out, but I, that, I, I said we were going to do it because of the opening. So I set myself up to loop us that way. <laughs> yeah, but, we have yeah. to include that. You, you, you're yes. bragging on your amazing podcast. <laughs> no, the bookend no. was great. It was great. All right, guys, let's plug our pluggables and wrap this one up. This was a good episode. Um, I'll go first. I never go first. I'm Charles Hain on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> at Charles Hain. Uh, my Twitter is really just politics lately. It's it's. It is, <laughs> I haven't talked about movies in a while, but like, please stop setting forest fires to reveal the gender of your baby, please. <laughs> um, and uh, you can check out. Uh, all of the stuff I've ever made at charlesaint.com and you can go to saltypirate.tv to find out where to where to stream my, my web series Salty Pirate which came out earlier this summer and is on Amazon and Vimeo and Ficto and all sorts of places. This is Michelle De La Tour. I'm really excited to have returned this week. Thank you George and Charles for having me back on. It is great to be with you both. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at mdelator, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. I'm currently playing a lot with macro lenses and a projector lens to try and get some swirls in terms of photos. That's all from me this week. Michelle, we are so happy to have you back, as always. Uh, and of course, Charles, always happy to have you. Um, and I'm somewhat tolerant of having myself. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find everything we talked about and a whole lot more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Facebook, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, retweet our tweets. Uh, Check us out on Megaphone where we have all of our podcasts 
And, you know, wherever you get podcasts, be sure to like, rate, subscribe, leave a comment, let us know what you think. Email us your questions, comments, concerns, hopes, fears, desires, maybe not desires, at editor at nofilmschool.com or ask at nofilmschool.com. And I, you know, I want to direct people over to the site. There's some, there's some good stuff going on. There are a lot of tech announcements coming. Um, we have our massive list of fall 2020 grants all filmmakers should know about from Oakley Anderson Moore. And I think we're going to try to get her on the podcast to talk about them so you guys can get here in our podcast world a nice uh, idea of what, what she's got for us this quarter. She does it quarterly, and it's always a huge piece for the community as you know, festivals continue to come as the world continues to turn and uh, around where I am, burn as well. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe. Stay safe.